Welcome to Next on the Tee with Chris Mascaro, where tour players, legends, and the top instructors in the game share their stories, insights, and playing lessons. Join Chris every week as he talks with the greats of the game. You are the smartest guy I've spoken to on radio or television in my career. And Chris, again, you are, you're knocking out of the park. You're like eight under par in this interview. By having any research, I'm hiring your tail to be the research man. You're the best. You're a fantastic host and tremendously respected in the golf community. Yeah, Chris, you do an amazing job and your listeners are super lucky to have you and it's always my pleasure. Chris Carroll is the king of the golf podcast. Don't miss him on Tuesdays. Now, here's your host, Chris Mascaro. Good evening, folks, and thank you for being here and joining me this week on Next on the T. I'm your host, Chris Mascaro. I hope your Valentine's Day week, if you will, is off to a great start. It's an exciting week here on the show. A new hometown sponsor is going to be joining the show next week, a company that I've always dreamed that I would have as part of this show. So I'm very excited to tell you who that's going to be. It will have to wait until next week, but I'm very excited to share with you which sponsor that is going to be. I'm also very excited because tonight I've got three rookies joining me as part of the show. It's always great to have first-timers coming to be a part of the show. It's always so fulfilling for me to be able to bring new people onto the show and share their stories and their insights with you. We're going to get a triple dose of it tonight, so looking forward to that. We'll talk about who those folks are going to be in just a moment. We're going to lead off this week's show, of course, like we do every other week, with our Director of Instruction, Tom Patry. This week, TP and I are going to talk about the Wasted Management Open. It's getting completely out of hand over there. I know it's a huge party and it's the People's Open, but it's really gone from being fun to see all the things that happened there to actually starting to get dangerous. It certainly did for one young lady. We'll talk about all of that in just a minute. Plus, the scoring explosion that we're seeing out on the tours. It's like Oprah's show. You can shoot a 59. You'll get a 59. You'll get a 57. And we'll also talk about the resurrection of the MaxFly golf ball. So a lot to get into with TP tonight. It's always fun when he's a part of the show. He'll join me here in just a few minutes. Following him, I'm going to be joined by a guy who won twice out on tour, plus the 1984 National Championship, the Western Amateur, and he's become a great college coach as well, and that is John Inman. John is the younger brother of Joe Inman, who you may recognize as well. He had a great playing career out on the PGA Tour. Excited to have John as part of the show. He's going to join me about 25 minutes from now. After him, my second rookie of the week is going to be Barry Cheeseman. Barry won twice out on what was then the Ben Hogan Tour. He was also in the mix several times during the 80s and early 90s. He won the 1986 Florida State Amateur Championship. He's become a fantastic instructor now down in Florida. A lot to get into with him. He'll join me about 45 minutes from now. And then we'll round things out with a visit from Robert Morris head men's golf coach, Steve Shingledecker. Steve is a tremendous athlete, three-sport athlete at, at that, played college baseball at NC State. He's coached Franklin High in, in the Pittsburgh area to a state championship in basketball. He's got a great amateur golf career in that area as well. And like I say, now leading the golf team at Robert Morris. So very much looking forward to having him as part of the show. He'll join me about an hour from now. So I got a great show teed up for you this week, folks. But as always, I can't thank you enough for tuning in 
and taking the journey with me this week. Before we get started, and like I've been saying to you guys for the last several months, our resident director of instruction, Tom Patry, and I have been working with a company called Kickpoint, and they have done some magical things with our logos and create some polo shirts with some wonderful designs where they take our logos and turn them into designs on a polo shirt. They're absolutely outstanding. Kickpoint Golf is a private label custom golf apparel company making bespoke polo shirts, quarter zips, and hoodies for those selected clubs looking to take their branded game to a whole new level. If you want to check out their apparel, and again, it's going to knock your socks off, send an email to info at kickpointgolf.com. They'll get right back to you. There's no middleman. They're going to go right to the guys that do this work. You're going to check it out, and you are really going to love what they do. I'm going to start showing the uh, polo shirts that they designed for me on my Instagram, at CT Mascaro. Check them out there so you can get a sample of what they look like. These guys know where it's at. Now let's talk about golf getaways and buddies trip locations. When you're thinking about that, think about our friends over at the McLemore which is a wonderful resort located just south of Chattanooga, Tennessee, high atop Lookout Mountain. It is a casual two-hour drive from Atlanta, Nashville, and Birmingham. The existing Highlands course is now ranked in the top 100 courses you can play in the U.S. by Golf Digest. The 18th hole is ranked in the top 10 finishing holes in the world. A second course, the Keep, is under construction and will open summer of 2024. The Keep is a Bill Bergen Reese Jones design and features a mile and a half of dramatic cliff edge, with every inch of that edge filled up with a golf hole. A world-class hotel, Cloudland Lookout Mountain Curio Collection by Hilton will open spring of 2024. Both have incredible views into historic McLemore Cove, 1,200 feet below. You gotta see it to believe it, folks. Stay dine and play golf above the clouds at McLemore. Go online to McLemore.com to book your stay and play package. Now let's talk about the new P790 irons from TaylorMade. From the very beginning, P790 irons have been rooted in clean aesthetics and thoughtful design. However, their true beauty is found beneath the surface. With AI-optimized weighting and speed foam air on the inside, every iron is uniquely designed to perform exactly how you need it to. As striking as they are on the outside, their true beauty lies within. Learn more about the new P790 irons from TaylorMade by checking out their website at TaylorMadeGolf.com. All right, now back with us is our resident director of instruction, Tom Patry. As you know, TP is the director of player development at the Twin Eagles Club in Naples, Florida. He is a 13-time Golf Magazine Top 100 teacher, a four-time PGA Teacher of the Year, three-time Golf Digest Best in the State, including in their most recent December 2023, January 2024 edition. And he is back for an amazing 93rd time with me here on Next on the Tee. Good evening, TP. How are you, my friend? What's up, Tommy boy? How are you? Chris, I just had an unbelievable evening. Um, About three nights ago, Denise made her famous homemade lasagna Ooh. which is it's pretty strong okay Fred, that's okay but there's nothing better to me than leftover day two was, yeah day two yeah. lasagna yeah day two lasagna and we had to, i kind of i kind of scoured it down tonight you know a couple two two large pieces tonight and then Ooh. followed it up with her chocolate coconut cake get out 
Oh, I'm telling you, what a night, man. What a night. You know, when no you, kidding. When you, when you get to my age, those are, those are the things that excite you. Let's bow down another loop. It's, it's been a hell of a night, man. A hell of a night. Now I got you. So how you get me? It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. Yeah, great night. Great night. All right, so let's get right into it, because we are on the heels of this year's Waste Management Open. Perhaps a better name next year should be the Wasted Management Open. Because this event, Tom, is just getting out of hand. At one point, they had to close the gate, shut down the liquor sales because the crowd was getting out of control. We had people body surfing down hills by the stands on 18. One guy got arrested for making a sand angel in one of the bunkers. There was a streaker on Sunday. They're heckling Zach Johnson out there, which threw him over the edge. Billy Horschel had to get involved and start calling people out. Jordan Spieth. Pointed out someone in the crowd after he hit his approach shot on 18 that that guy yelled in his backswing, immediately drops his club. I mean, I know the tour sort of signed up for this thing, Tom, when they condoned what goes on there at 16 and they built the stadium hole. But it was a bit cringeworthy this year, and I thought it got out of control. What are your thoughts? Well, you forgot you forgot to mention the lady that fell out of the stands and got hurt, too. Right. Yeah, so you forgot that one. So let's add her in there, too. Hope she's okay. Um, yeah, it's really simple. They, 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 uh, they care for what you wish for. You may get it. Well, they wish for it and they got it right and now. It is totally out of control. I mean, listen, I get the stadium hole. I get the part three. I get the yelling and the screaming. It's fun. But when you put a couple hundred thousand people on property and you just, you just, you know, pour the alcohol down their throats, something eventually is going to happen. Guess what? It, it happened. <laughs> it happened in droves this year. And now. Now you got to go back and rethink this whole thing because maybe that model isn't such a good idea in 2024. It 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 was it was way over the top, way over the top. Yeah, and I mean I get that alcohol plays a big role, and because of weather, we had to push. You know, they, I mean they had to play thirty something holes. You know, one day to kind of catch up and get things going and all that sort of thing. So people had extra time to get all liquored up, but. As you allude to, Tom, 2024 is a meaner, nasty place. We see it every day out on social media. Yep. Well, heckling guys. And Billy Horschel talked about, you know, hey, people need to have a little respect. On some level, there are still guys out here trying to win a golf tournament. And one of the fans yelled at him, well, you knew what you were signing up for when you came and played this event. And I don't know that you do. I mean, I know that you expect to get in there on 16. And if you don't make it onto the green or you hit a bad shot or you miss a putt, people are going to boo you. That That's sort of the charm of the thing. I get it. But you're really not signing up for people heckling you, yelling in your backswing and all that sort of stuff. I, I agree with you. I think at some point now, and I think we've reached that point, Jay Monahan and the tour officials got to take a look at what we got going on here and understand this is a different day and time. And if you give people a lot of time to get liquored up, you're going to end up with a situation just like this. You got to make some change. It's 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 too much. I mean, you know the, you know again, you have that many people drinking on the same property in close quarters, and you're gonna ha- you're gonna get you're gonna get a percentage of knuckleheads out there that just you know don't know when enough's enough, and you know the heckling and all that kind of stuff. That's one thing, but when people start falling out of stands and hurting themselves, you know you have a liability issue, and it, it can really come back to bite you. It wouldn't take much to really make that a a really ugly scene. Um, you know, I, mean, I just think it's way over the top. 
just enough stuff. Tom, speaking of other things that have gotten out of hand, over the last couple of week, weeks, we've seen players out on the Corn Ferry Tour shoot 57 and 59. We've seen Joaquin Neiman out on the Live Tour shoot 59. And oh, by the way, one of the kids that shot a 59 on the Corn Ferry Tour was 19, by the way. We've seen a couple of 60s out on the PGA Tour, highlighted by Wyndham Clark going out and shooting a course record 60 at Pebble Beach. It's like it's like the Oprah show, Tom. You get a 59, and you get a 59, and you get a 57. I mean, it's getting crazy out there. Yeah, way back when, we talked about this off air today, Chris, you know, Roger Bannister broke the four-minute mile after science told us that the male could never run a sub-four-minute mile. Um, and, and the whole world believed that, except for Roger Bannister. So once Roger Bannister broke that four-minute mile, you know, in the next ensuing weeks, several other guys broke it as well. Uh, the, the the proverbial mental wall was down. So I think we've seen that happen in a couple of fronts on, in golf. You know, when, when I was playing, and I'm going back a long time, I know, but if a guy hit 300 yards, it was unprecedented. And then and then another guy did it, another guy did it, and all of a sudden, you know, the lid's off, and here we go with distance. And now, from a scoring standpoint, you know, breaking 60 was unheard of. I mean, back when I played, nobody even thought about breaking 60. And and now you have guys doing it left and right because they believe they can do it. There's, there's a there is a mental roadblock in some of these achievements that w- once it's down, all bets are off. I think on the other side though, Chris, on the in the pebble situation, you got to remember that was a little bit of a um, a rarefied air because what Wyndham did there that day, I think he bested the field by over five shots that day. Um, so there was nobody even close to him. He was. Uh, you know, more or less an outlier in that case on on a very, very soft defensive golf course. Uh, and he got it going. And, and when you have that many talented people in one location, somebody's going to get hot and, and run the table. The other situation on the Corn Ferry Tour in South America, you and I talked about this off air. You know, when I saw all those scores coming in, not only the 57, but so many, you know, low 60 scores, you know, I, I popped it online because I didn't know anything about the site. And they were playing on two golf courses. One was 6,200 yards and one was 7,200 yards at 8,000 feet. So effectively, the 6,200-yard golf course was, you know, 58 or 5,900 yards. And the 7,200 golf course was, you know, you know, 69 and change. And, 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 you know, as far as these guys hit it today, can you imagine putting a PGA Tour event on the 6,200? Who, who made that decision, put it on a 6,200-yard golf course at 8,000 feet? I mean, come on. That means, you know, even an old dog like me could go out and shoot a number in that golf course. So that does bring up uh, what the other question I wanted to ask you is, it's not like the course snuck up on them and they just realized one day oh. when they got there that it was, oh, it's 8,000 feet up here. You know, I mean, holy cow, this this golf course is going to play too easy. I mean, you know years in advance where courses are going to be, you know, what, what courses you're going to play, what the schedule looks like, and and what the course conditions are going to be. Uh, to me, that to your point, how do you end up allowing a professional event, particularly at the Corn Ferry Tour level, to be played at that short a distance? I, Chris, I, I don't have an answer to you. I mean, I I, I was kind of when I when I popped on the course stats and the, you know the course layout and everything, I was I was I kind of did a double take. I mean, the LPGA Tour plays golf courses significantly longer than that golf course. At just the length, and then at eight thousand feet of elevation, you know, for anybody who's played golf in Denver, 
um, it's 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 different. Uh, you know, I, I remember playing in the Mexican Open uh, in 1982, I believe, in Mexico City, and I, I remember playing the first hole or the second hole, and the, the scorecard was like 460 yards, 470 yards, par four back in 1982, which we we didn't see those things in those days, and I was like, holy crap! And this this is gone. This is long. I hit the drive out there and had like an eight iron. What happened? Is the scorecard wrong? No, dummy. You're, <laughs> you're, you know, you're a mile above sea level. This thing goes a long way. And you know, to play a golf course in in 2024 in a professional event with with very skilled young players at 6,200 yards, 8,000 feet. Um, I, I'd like to know who made that decision. That was. It seems a little odd to me. Speaking of going a long way and something that's odd to me, um, I saw the news a couple of weeks ago that Lexi Thompson switched golf balls. She's now going to play a Max Flies, Tom. I haven't heard a tour player on any tour playing Max Flies since the 80s. Are you surprised to hear that Lexi made the switch to Max Fly? Maybe she's having trouble paying her mortgage or something, Chris, and she needed a little, <laughs> a little you, extra You think cash. maybe she... She needed a little extra cash. Uh, no, I, I mean... You know, Lexi, Lexi puzzles me on puzzles me on a lot of fronts in some of the things she's done and ha- and and decides to do and, and some of the behaviors. Um, but I haven't, I haven't, I don't know of any person I know that's a professional college player, uh, ranked amateur, uh, club champion at a, at a recreational. I don't know where to buy a max play, Chris. <laughs> You know, other, other than maybe Dick Sporting or just something like that. And I'm not knocking Dick's at all. Don't get me wrong. But I, I haven't seen a Max Fly golf ball. I, I don't know when the last time I saw one was, to tell you the truth. So I don't know what's that. I don't know what that's about. I hope it's worth a lot to her as far as her pocketbook. Um, because I don't care. You know, and, and you know me, I'm, I'm a, I'm a tireless loyalist you know, through and through. You know, you're playing competitive golf for a living. Your equipment is really important, and the golf ball is a very important piece of equipment. Lexi, not a great choice. <laughs> so let's talk about golf balls for a moment, because we talk about getting fit for our golf clubs all the time and how important that is, and it's even more important for amateurs like me, weekend warriors. You know, Some of my buddies always talk about how that should be that's for professional guys. That's not for guys like us, and it's actually the opposite. It's more for guys like us than it is for professionals. But a lost piece in that is getting fit for your golf ball because you could have the greatest woods and irons on the planet. But if you're hitting the wrong golf ball, you're really cheating yourself. Talk about the importance of finding the right ball for your swing. It's funny you should ask me that question. And we did not talk about this before. I didn't know you were going to ask me that question. But just by coincidence, say at the beautiful Twin Eagles Club in Naples, Florida, we had a Titleist golf ball fitting deck. And we had we had uh, you know titles representative in to uh, to anybody who wanted to come by and talk to them about the importance of the golf ball and based on swing speed and, and different different skill sets you know what was the best ball for the for the player and titles were kind enough to provide free samples to everybody who wanted to attend or stop by the the booth on the range um, yeah the golf ball is very important I mean you know it's amazing to me that. In 1981, when I won that NCAA, I played a ballada ball and a wooden headed club. Um, I recently took that driver out and hit it on the range with some with some modern balls. And first of all, the size of the club was was scary to me. I don't even know how I, I don't know how I hit it back. Then. 
don't really even know how to hit that golf club. But the golf ball and the Balada golf ball compared to the Pro V1 today or any quality golf ball today w- was like a marshmallow back then. And we thought and it was the greatest thing. We had nothing to compare it to, so we thought it was the greatest thing on the planet. The golf ball technology across all skill sets has come so far in the last, I'm going to call it 25 years. And even even from year to year has come so far that if you're not really paying attention to that, you're right, Chris, you are cheating yourself. There are horses for courses and there are golf balls for players. Um, the golf ball is very important. And, and to educate yourself, maybe go online, do a little reading, understand your swing speed, and understand maybe your launch angle with the driver, um, and go get fit for a golf ball. I think it's very important. Very, very important. Tom, you're Mr. Short Game, Short Game, Short Game. And one of the ways for weekend warriors like me to do the things that we want to do from a goal perspective at the beginning of a golf season, whether your goal is to break 100, break 90, or break 80, one of the ways to do that for us is in our short game. Bobby Jones always talked about the key is to turn three into two. Talk about some of the things that weekend warriors like me can do. And I know we got to practice and all that sort of thing because. We all want to hit the ball further when people spend way too much time on their driver and not enough time on their wedge game. But talk about a way for us to turn three into two. Well, I mean, I think I think the the magic word you used first of all, Chris, and foremost was practice, and then and understanding your equipment. And and you know when uh, Bob Vokey came along and really I think really really truly revolutionized the design of the wedge um, and went to different grinds and different bounces and different lofts. I mean, think, I think about it all the time. When I, when I was playing competitively um, during most of my career, both as a collegiate player and then as a professional, the highest loftiest club, lofted wedge you could buy on the planet was 55 degrees. And the wedge, con- the configuration of bounce back then compared to what we have today was so incredibly crude. Um, you know, guys like Bob Vokey changed that forever. And understanding, understanding how to use a wedge and, and use the bounce against the ground and, and hit different shots now, um, you know, with a little help from a coach, could really change your ability to take three into two, as Mr. Jones said. Um, You know, bunker play, I mean, at the the recreational level, one of the things I see everywhere I've taught in my career is, uh, and I've been in some great places, Chris, as you know, that have great practice facilities. Westchester was wonderful. Friars said was off the charts. And Twin Eagles might be the best practice facility in southwest Florida. we have a practice bunker. We have a practice short game area. Um, we have undulations and nooks and crannies to hit different shots and, and from different lines. Um, and so many clubs they have are, are starting to have really good short game areas and paying more attention to that. And it would, it would, it would behoove every amateur out there who's listening to this broadcast to grab a competent teacher and spend, I'm going to call it 70% of their time in their next golf season working from 30 yards and in. Uh, it would change their life. It would change their enjoyment of the game. It would change that little box at the end called total on the scorecard. Um, there's a lot of different ways to hit a lot of different shots, and it's not it's not it's not always a one on one thing. You know, if you can get your skill set to a three on one level, um, that total box is going to have a very different number in it. Tom, something else that you've talked about recently on your Instagram page and something that we see tour players like Justin Thomas do, and that's a backswing rehearsal that goes to about hip high. Talk about takeaway cue and getting the club started properly in our backswing. 
And as the, as our old friend, the great Bob Grissett, you know, taught me, uh, you know, P1, position one is addressed, and P2 is when the club gets waist high. Uh, and depending on what you're trying to do with your golf ball in terms of what kind of shape or trajectory you're trying to hit, uh, at P2, that club face could be in a, in a number of different positions, depending, again, on what you're trying to do. Uh, certainly, you know, one of the things I see coming out of the starting gate with so many amateurs is a broken sequence. And what I mean by that, Chris, is that, you know, I like to see the golf club, the arms, and the torso come out of that starting gate in a dead heat. There was a really good player back a ways back. You might have heard of him. His name was Jack Nicholas, And he talked about a thing called the one-piece takeaway. Um, and, and he basically was just trying to get everything moving in a dead heat that nobody kind of won the race. There was no rabbit and there was no hair. Everybody came out of there in dead heat. And, and the basic premise, old school premise was, boy, if everything starts together, it's a lot better chance of returning together. Um, very old school, but, but very logical and very simple. Um, you see, you see so many great players making that waste time rehearsal. You know, and you mentioned Justin Thomas, but the guy that caught my eye first with this a while ago was a guy named Mike Weir. Um, who made that rehearsal uh, religiously. Um, if you can get that, that whole mechanism started in kind of a dead heat, I think the ability to sequence the downstream becomes a lot easier. Tom, just a couple more before I let you go, and I got to get your thoughts on the new Tiger Woods logo. We saw the clothesline came out. And it was... <laughs> Sunday red. And Sunday is two words, by the way. It's Sunday red. And it's going to be a standalone subsidiary of TaylorMade. I'm not sure why it needed to be Sunday. I saw the explanation of it. It really didn't make much sense to me because it just didn't. But your thoughts? What do you think of the the logo and the new uh, the new clothesline? Well, a couple, a couple of corrections, maybe maybe some help for you there. I guess he wanted to do Sunday as one word, Sunday Red, and somebody had it because he was going to do SundayRed.com as a website, and somebody already had that web address so he couldn't do that so that's when he went to three words sunday red uh, so that was the explanation i got on that and then the logo itself i it was explained to me by it looks like almost like a skeleton of a cat every one of those lines represents one of the majors he won so the number of of, uh, of skeletal pieces matches the number of majors the tiger won so that's kind of you know kind of a cool thing although it looks kind of <laughs> It looks almost like almost like a Neanderthal type cat. Um, we dug up out of out of a kind of research rooms, but I don't know, Chris. I mean, does everybody buy into Tiger Woods' new apparel line in 2024? I mean, I know he still moves the needle. I know he's Tiger Woods. Does he still have enough juice to sell clothing and apparel? Um, you know, and, and I guess the argument against me would be that Michael Jordan still sells sneakers. He sure does, right? So yep. we'll, we'll, we're going to see pretty quickly here. It's going to it's going to debut at the Genesis at uh, Riviera, and there's going to be a lot of Tiger fans on property at Genesis. I'm sure they're going to just have that stuff hanging everywhere in every merchandise tent on the property. So I think by Monday of Genesis, we'll have a pretty idea about sales and uh, and how much it heated up, but. Um, you know, I, I'm tired of betting against Tiger and anything because I always get I always get my ass kicked by betting against him. <laughs> so I, I'm, I'm not going to do I'm not going to do that anymore. So one more, I got to get your thoughts on the Super Bowl. What'd you think? I thought that uh, one muff punt off the back of a a blocker's shoe that went sideways changed the whole momentum of the game. 
I thought both teams played exceptionally well. I think both teams are very well coached. I, I think both teams have incredible skill set players. Uh, and, and that that little guy, Kermit the Frog from Kansas City, they call him Patrick Mahomes, did it again, didn't he? Um, what a heartbreak when that punt came off that guy's foot. And that changed, I just think that changed the whole game right there. Um, you know, it was uh, it was one of the best Super Bowls we've seen in a long time, going to overtime and being close and kind of going back and forth. But, uh, you know, God bless Andy Reid, the way he, he, he uh, he's cemented his place in, in football history, has he not? Yeah. Tom, before I let you go, remind our listeners, how can they stay up to date with you on your Instagram page, LinkedIn, all those different places, plus on your website? Well, in, in show 93 on Next on the T, I think the best place to find me is right here every other Tuesday with the greatest host in the, wor- in the world, in Golf Podcast. Um, so that's the first place you can find me, and the place that everybody should be tuned into every Tuesday night with your lineup and your talent, Chris. That should be right here. Um, all the regular places, Instagram, you know, LinkedIn, Facebook, uh, the website, just tompatry.com. But, but, uh, my, my, my real home has become, uh, every other Tuesday night with you, buddy. And I'm, I'm proud to be here. Well, I'm proud to have you here. Can't thank you enough, my friend. You're the best. All the best to you and, uh, Mrs. Patry. We look forward to doing it again with you two weeks from tonight. Just tell John in when I said hi, would you? I will absolutely do that. Thanks. Thank you, TP. All the best. Bye, buddy. See you, man. That is the great Tom Patrick, folks. Again, at Tom Patrick Golf is where you can find him on Instagram. TomPatrick.com is the website. And uh, like I say, every time he's a part of the show, subscribe to that YouTube channel because you're going to get over 300 free playing lessons and tips right there for you that you can take out to the driving range or whatever it is you're going to practice. Plug those in and watch them and then execute what Tom tells you to do. And you're going to instantly become a better player. I can't thank him enough for being here 93 times. But on top of being a great instructor, he is just one of the best people you'll meet on this planet. So like I say, we'll catch up with him again in a couple of weeks. Coming up next is a guy who had a stellar amateur career, highlighted by winning the 1984 National Championship and getting the Haskins Award for being the College Player of the Year. He would go on to win a couple of times out on the PGA Tour and then and becoming a great college coach, and that is John Inman. Before I get to John, I was talking with Eddie Dry, VP of Domestic Sales for Strixon Cleveland Golf, at the PGA Merchandise Show earlier this year, and I said, Eddie, I like your CBX full-face wedges. How can they help an average player like me play better? Here's what he had to say. An average player, I use one, and I'm in some lies that you can't even believe, and I need all the help I can get, and the face is bigger, and the grooves go all the way up and all the way out to the toe. So if I, you hit it on the toe, you miss it, bam, there's a groove. So I like that. So I carry a, a 58. There you have it, folks. Try the new CBX full-face wedges from Cleveland Golf. I also want to give a shout-out to my friends over at On Point Golf and their great On Point Ball Marker. Get the number one ball marker in the game of golf. On Point is the only three-dimensional ball marker out there with alignment technology and a removable coin that is approved to use according to the rules of golf. As you know, putting is all about line and pace. Mark your ball with On Point, engage with your three-dimensional ball marker, and have more confidence in your line, execute the putt, and you're going to lower your scores. Do what the likes of Jim Furyk, PGA professionals and amateurs alike are doing now. 
They use the number one ball marker in golf, and they lower their scores. You know Ken Duke and Thong Chai JD. They won for the first time on the PGA Tour in 2023, and they were using an on-point ball marker. Get yours at onpointgolf.us and make more putts. And oh, by the way, you can also customize the removable coin for any club, event, or corporate outing. They make really great tee gifts and custom products. That's also going to help lower your score. I use on-point ball markers. Mine is black and gold, 3D black golf ball with a gold line down the middle to help me line up my putts. It's like having a 15th club in my bag. It's helped my game. Why wouldn't you let it help yours? Again, onpointgolf.us. See what I'm talking about. Order yours today. Now let's talk grips. I want to tell you about Lampkin grips. Every shot, as you know, has its own unique feel. The trick? Feel comfortable with each one. And comfort is built into the very DNA of Sonar Plus Black Grips. Composed of their Genesis material that provides supreme comfort and durability with their fingerprint technology creates a strong connection and unforgettable touch. The game changes from shot to shot. The feel in your hand shouldn't. Lampkin. Feel is everything. Now making his first appearance with me here on Next on the T is John Inman. Let me give you some background on John. He is from Greensboro, North Carolina, attended Grimsley High School and won the 1980 High School Athletic Association State Championship. Went on to play his college golf at the University of North Carolina, where he was a three-time All-American. In 1982, he won the ACC Championship. During his senior season, he received the Haskins Award, which is given annually to the College Player of the Year. He was the individual medalist at the 1984 National Championship. In fact, his 17 under par score broke the scoring record that was set by Ben Crenshaw back in 1971. He also won the Western Amateur in 1984, beating Rocco Mediate 3 and 2. John turned pro in 1985, got through Q School in 86, and then got his first win out on the PGA Tour in 87 at the Provident Classic, which is just a little bit north of me here on 75 up in Chattanooga, Tennessee. He won that tournament by a stroke over Bill Glasson and got Rocco Mediate again. He won again in 1993 at the Buick Classic, this time in a five-way playoff that included a great friend of the show, Bob Estes. After his days on tour, he returned to the University of North Carolina and became the head golf coach there from 1998 to 2011. He led them to 16 tournament victories, two 10th place finishes in the NCAA National Championship. He also played a few seasons out on the Champions Tour and had three top 10 finishes out there. In 2012, he was inducted into the Guilford County Sports Hall of Fame. He is the younger brother of Joe Inman, who won four times between the PGA Tour and the Champions Tours. And I'm excited I get to have John with me tonight here on Next on the T. Hey, John, thanks for coming on the show. Chris, thanks. Thanks for having me. Nice to meet you. And uh, I got to tune in and listen to Mr. Patry. And uh, uh, hopefully I'll get to say hello to him. But uh, that was a good segment. and. Really glad to be with you. I appreciate you, John. And I, I want to go back to the early days with you and as we start our conversation. And I read that Joe, who's 15 years older than you, really took care of you. Talk about growing up with Joe as your older brother. Yeah, he was kind of more like a dad. You know, he was I was born three days before his 15th birthday. So, um, you know, I was uh, I was always hanging around uh, the range with him when I was a kid. Uh, the great Woody Durham, who was the voice of the Tar Heels, he was uh, he was one of the um, uh, sports. 
announcers or, you know, on TV at uh, up in Greensboro. And uh, when I was a kid and he always used to say, you know, John, I've known you since you were in diapers because I think I was still in diapers one time out on the range when uh, Woody was out there like interviewing Joe. So, uh, you know, I've always been uh, always hung around. I was always, you know, trying to emulate what he did. Um, you know, I learned my golf swing from him just, uh, you know, and, and the rest, you know, we're all different people, but I think we have a lot of similarities in our, in our game. We're very, uh, we have to be gritty because we weren't long hitters. We were the shortest hitters and we had to, uh, you know, figure it out. We had to figure out how to win. And, um, you know, my brother was a, an incredible and to this day, 76 years old and and still a great player. You don't want to play him at 6,000 yards. You put him on that 6,000 yard course down in Mexico, he'll shoot 60. I mean, he'll, <laughs> he'll make five, six, seven birdies. Um, you know, he just, he's, uh, you know, and I learned that a lot of that stuff from him, but I think I still have that, you know, some of those same tendencies and, um, you know, it was uh, it was great. He's always been a leading, uh, you know, voice in my life and, um, you know, don't always agree with him. But, uh, 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 you know, he taught me a lot. Speaking of being young out there, I read that by the time you were six, you were out there trying to play. And all Joe wanted you to do was chip and putt because he said you can beat a lot of players if you can get up and down from anywhere around the greens consistently. Does that sound Right about his philosophy. That sounds exactly right. Because, you know, and, and, you know, even when I went to college, you know, at, at UNC, um, you know, I just, I was never a ball beater. I just, it just didn't, didn't interest me. If I was hitting it well, you know, I would hit balls for 20 minutes. And if I was, you know, hitting the shots that I wanted, I would go chip and putt. But I, I could just spend hours around the putting and chipping green. And that's what I did. And I knew that, you know, Joe really did uh, make a point that that, that was very important uh, to success. And, um, you know, I, I and I love doing it. I love just spending time down there, whether anybody was there with me or not, I'd play my own games. Uh, but and when I was coaching, um, I, you know, I used to set up short game courses on our on our pitching green and I have a six or a seven hole course that you had to shoot a certain score before you moved on to go hit ball. So we had to play the course, you know, it was an up and down course and you had to shoot a certain score. And, and, you know, that I just, you know, that's what I tried to stress to, you know, my players, um, you know, I thought, I thought it was one of the most important things. John, I also read that you play piano and sing. Is that just recreational for you and the family or is it more than that? <laughs> well, uh, yeah, you know, I, I was, I was way more interested in that than my brothers. Uh, all my sisters could sing and uh, I did play the piano. I took lessons for like four years and, uh, but I, I was in since seventh grade, I was in every madrigals choir. Um, I was in a barbershop quartet for, you know, since, since ninth grade. So, um, you know, we just got together our barbershop quartet. We hadn't, been together in probably 20 years or more and uh uh boy we have uh we've lost something along the way so we've got to we've decided that we need to we need to pick it up and we need to figure out how to get better at it again but that you know that's that's what I did all through high school and yeah I was uh way more interested in that than uh than my other two brothers 
Now, Joe played his college golf at Wake Forest. How did it come about that you go to a rival ACC school at North Carolina? Wow, that was, you know, that was probably one of the most tumultuous uh, parts of my life. Um, you know, I grew up, my father was the project manager who built Wake Forest over in the late, in the late 50s and early 60s over in Winston-Salem. So that was one of the largest gifts to a university from the R.J. Reynolds uh, Corporation. They gifted them that campus. And my father built Wake Forest. My brother went there. I went to all the football games when I was, you know, a kid growing up. And uh, when it came time, you know, I was always I told the UNC coach, I said, you know, we used to play the state high school right there at Finley Golf Course. And and I told him, I said, you don't need to talk to me. I'm going to Wake Forest. And and uh, my sister, Jeanette, in her infinite wisdom, she went to East Carolina. Uh, which is a little bit more party school than 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 most, but she knew about North Carolina, and she said, "John, you need to go down there." So I ended up going down there one weekend and uh, loved it. Not just liked it, loved it. And you know, to me, it was the place. It was the place for me. And I ended up signing a letter of intent um, that Sunday night. The coach came to the house. Dad wouldn't let him in. Matter of fact, my mom <laughs> signed the letter of intent. My dad. Wanted no part. He never forgave me for going to Carolina. Wow. Brutal. Yep. John, in 82, you win the individual ACC championship. Then you led the team to the team championship the following year in 83, 84, and it was played at Pinehurst. Talk about what you remember about winning the individual medalist honors and then teaming with Davis Love III and Jack Nicholas II to win the team title. Wow. You know, I wish I remembered more. But I went through some bad stretches hitting the ball, you know, in college because I was, you know, and and Tom Patry would be, uh, he would remember that I used to be able, you know, very inside and I'd hit drop kicks, you know, it was more of the move, you know, drive the legs, club drops underneath and you flip the hand. So I went through some stretches where, I I mean, I just hit it horrifically. Um, I could always, you know, score because I, I just knew how to score, but um, the year that I won, I beat, I think it was, uh, Dillard Pruitt. Um, and, uh, you know, I was playing pretty good, wasn't playing, you know, great, but, um, you know, and then winning the team championship, you know, to me, that was always, you know, better, you know, I just really enjoyed, uh, you know, Davis, Kurt Beck, Todd Thiel, Brian Sullivan, um, let's see who else, uh, Greg Parker, I can just see, you know, Jackie, you know, it, it was, it was um, you know, both of those in 83 and 84 were, were very satisfying, you know, to win the team championship, to beat Wake, you know, Wake Forest, you know, Billy Andre, and Jerry Haas, and, you know, a lot of great players, Mark Daxton, um, you can go down the list, you know, but, uh, we were all friends and, uh, you know, golf's a small community. I, I looked, you know, tonight when I looked at the, the lineup and I was, and Barry Cheeseman, I'm staying on afterwards because I need to. I need to just heckle Barry Cheeseman. If, <laughs> if I wanted you to know that, you know, because you know, I, I was like, oh my gosh, I hadn't seen Cheese in so long, and we we're good friends out on tour. And uh, but it, you know, so it is. It's a small fraternity, and you know, to have success is uh, it, you know, is really special, and it's much more special when when the team does it. With Jackie Nicholas on the team and knowing how important it was to Jack to attend uh, all of his kids' events, how often did you get to be around Jack? Well, 
we used to go down there uh, in the spring, like right before the season started, we'd go down and stay like half of us would stay at Jack Jack's house. And there was another uh, couple um, that would host some other uh, players and we'd go down there and practice and play. And, um, you know, so it, it was always, you know, it was always intimidating. Um, but it, you know, but it was, it was really good. As a matter of fact, I want to tell a little story that I, I, I usually tell when I was giving speeches and stuff about how I learned, you know, what I wanted to do. And it was when I caddied in the 81 PGA for my brother, Joe, down at uh, Atlanta Athletic Club. And I remember the first five holes, 456, 458, 470, par four, 220, 560. You know, I mean, just he, he said, this is the greatest, uh, the best grass farm I've ever seen. Man, they can grow some grass down here. So um, I ended up, you know, going through and and um, Joe made the cut. I won't tell the Tom Weisskopf part, but uh, yeah, which was was really instrumental. But the last day, Joe ends up playing with Jack Nicholas, and I was caddying. So I'm on the tee, and uh, we walk off the first tee the last day. And Jack looked at me. He said, "John, how are your grades this year?" And I almost choked. I mean, my grades were awful that year, and. Uh, you know, so I told him and he said, well, that makes me feel better about Jack. So when we get to the 18th <laughs> hole and, you know, you've got that lake and you, you got that walk around the lake. Well, Joe was playing with JC Sneed and Jack Nichols. Well, JC and Jack and JC and Joe stopped before the lake to let Jack have his walk around the lake. Well, I didn't get the high sign. I was two steps behind Jack Nichols all the way around that lake. As a matter of fact, halfway around, I think he turned around and looked over his shoulder like, what are you doing? <laughs> well, I mean, there's 40,000 people, I mean, screaming for him. I mean, the back, your hair on the back of my neck was standing up. So we get around the lake and Joe and I look back and Joe and JC were on the ground laughing. I mean, just <laughs> laughing. So we get up there and uh, when Joe comes up, he said, he just looked at me and I said, I know what I want to do now. Oh, I want to do this. <laughs> so that was pretty cool. <laughs> that is very cool. <laughs> speaking of things that are cool, I mean, you're the individual medalist again in 84. This time it's at the national championship. Team came in fourth behind Houston, who had a great team that year. Steve Elkington was a part of their team. But you go, on, you go off and you, you, you win the national championship. What was that like? Well, it's funny the week before you know, the, the schedule was really weird back then. And, uh, you know, we played the, uh, North South the week before and I got to the finals and I was playing a guy named uh, Davis love in the finals. So we're playing Pinehurst number two and he, he beats me four and three. I'll make this story short. He beats me four and three, but I mean, I got up and down. I think I was 12, 12 from the bunkers. I mean, I did everything I could do, but uh, after 18 holes, my bro Joe said to me, he says, I'm glad you're playing them and not me. <laughs> so we, 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 we played well. Um, and so then we fly out there, but Davis and I were on the same flight out there. Cause I think the team might've, I think already went. And so we, we fly out and um, you know, I had played that course in the, in the fall preview and I think I shot 12 over. So to shoot 17 under, from 12 over, what's that? 29 shots. Right. Only got 29 shots better, you know? So it was 
kind of strange, but I knew I was playing well at the time. I hold three shots from off the greens from, you know, 30 to 40 yards for Eagle on par fives. I mean, when I had a 30 or 40 yarder at that time in my life, I mean, literally I thought I could make, I mean, I, I, it didn't really matter what was going on. I just felt like I could make it. Um, so, uh, I played really well and, uh, Davis got two shots better every day. He shot 74, I think 72, 70, 68. And then we just, uh, you know, down the line, we struggled. The guys just struggled a little bit. I mean, we had a real good, we, you know, between Davis and I, we were 21 under and six under won the team. So, and we finished fourth. So, yeah, you can see, and, you know, and the guys just, you know, just didn't have that good a week. And, we ended up finishing fourth, but it was, it, it was a lot, uh, it was a lot of fun. Um, I didn't even realize how many under I was until like about the 17th hole, 16th hole. I was looking at the standard bearer walking with us and I was just like, wow, you know, what are you doing? You know, but it, it's just, you know, it was one of those weeks. I mean, 1984, you know, runner up to Davis in the North South. I won the NCAA. I won the Western. I finished fourth at the Son of Hannah. I mean, I, I I played really well that year. That was probably the best year of my life as far as a player in 1984. So, yeah, you mentioned winning the Western Am. You beat my fellow Pittsburgh area native Rocco Media three and two in that event. And it's the Western Am. Hey, that's one of the top amateur golf tournaments we have in our game. So many of the game's greatest legend won that tournament. Jack won there. Tiger won there. Phil won yep. there. Hal Sutton, Francis, we met. You name it the greatest players in the history of our game won that event. So you go out there and you win it. What was it like for you edging Rocco that week? Well, you know, it's funny. Um, the last day, you know, we, we had talked, you know, Rocco and I, we knew each other, you know, uh, all the guys in college, we, we all knew each other and, and played in the same tournaments. And uh, we talked about it. We had team um, uh, uh, plus fours, um, that we wore uh, as a team outfit in 1984. And uh, so did Rocco. Rocco had his with, we talked about it and we said, let's wear them in the, in the final match. So both of us wore plus fours. So that was the funny, that was to me, was pretty funny, but uh, I mean, we have 10,000 people out there and, you know, following us, but I mean, to tell you how crazy it is. I mean, I had to tell my mom uh, to send my one iron up there. I was playing a one iron. And, and, you know, Barry Cheeseman will definitely laugh at that. I don't know what I did with it, but, uh, you know, I, I, I had it in my bag. I had to, I had to have it. And, uh, it was a, it was a great week. And again, I just, you know, I had such a good year that year. I just knew, you know, when I had a 15 footer to, to win or a match or something against Danny Miovich or whatever, I just, I just knew I was going to make, it, you know, and it, and that's the, you know, most people, you know, never have that. And I was lucky to have it for a year, but you know, there's just time, you know, it was just one of those, you know, special things, you know, cause you know, golf, uh, like my brother talks about, you know, at the end you, you feel like Swiss cheese, you know, you just have like bullet holes in you, you know, just all the bad things that <laughs> happen to you and that make you so fragile, you know, but there are times when you know it, you, you're going to make this putt, you're going to, you know, and uh, that was that was my year. You got Rocco again a few years later when you got your first win out on the PGA Tour at the Provident Classic up in Chattanooga Council Fire Golf Club. You won it 
in style by speaking of knowing you're going to make it. You sink an 18-foot birdie putt on the last green to beat both Rocco and Bill Glasson by a stroke. Talk about that win. All I remember was I was walking on the other side of the fairway from Bill Glasson. That man scared me. He was a scary man. Um, he was just intimidating. But um, the 18th hole, and I remember I had a, a Rocco was in the group behind me, and I was on the fringe, and I had a piece of grass on the back of my putter. I'll never forget looking down, going, "Should you get that off or whatever?" I was like, yeah, "Come on, John, you you've made so many of these. Just hit it." And I hit it, and I made it. And then Rocco hit it left of the green, chipped it down to about four feet, and missed it. And then you know I win the I win the tournament. So it was you know just very very fortunate um, you know to be able to do that in my first year, and that gave me some some breathing room and and able to set my schedule a little bit more. And I lost my card a couple of times, but I went back and I mean one year I finished second at Q School and one or you know one time seventeenth or something. You know so you know it's just. It's a, it's a grind for, for most people, uh, not the, you know, the, the guys that you see, you know, on TV every day. Um, so, uh, yeah, that was uh, Rocco uh, has always brought out the best in me. And he is, uh, I mean, just look at what he's done. He's had such a great career and uh, great guy. And uh, we're still good friends. You get your second win out on tour in 93 at the Buick Southern Open, just a little south of me here in Atlanta, down at Callaway Gardens. Talk about surging near to the top of the leaderboard by shooting 64 in the third round and then winning in a five-way playoff. Yeah, I was I was 125th going into the week. I was shot one over the first day. I was two over. Uh, the second day after nine, and I had a little talking to to myself. I said, "You better we could turn this around." And I shot three under on the back to shoot one under for the day and and make the cut on the number. wasn't expecting much, but I went out the third day and I just made everything. Sixteenth hole I, it was a par three. I remember I had five wood in there. You know, most guys hit six iron. I was hitting five wood, and uh, I had a thirty footer, and I made it. And I looked at my caddy. I said, "Just don't talk." Just, just leave me alone. I mean, I just was making everything. I mean, if it was 20 feet, 40 feet, whatever. And uh, so it got me, I shot eight under the third round, got me in a good place. And I played with Bob Estes the last round and we kind of went back and forth and, uh, you know, ended up in a playoff and I wasn't hitting it that solid. I was, I remember I, I saw the replay of the 10th hole when I hit my second shot in the second hole of the playoff, we both birdied uh, 18 and then, I was, I remember I was like 150 or 153 or something. And I, I had seven in my hand. I, I went back and hit six iron because I was hitting it thin. I just hit it solid. So, and I hit it and I put my head down like, oh, I knew it was right on line. And it went up there eight feet and I made the pot. I mean, I knew I was going to make the pot. So, um, yeah, it was, uh, you know, and Bob Estes, what a great career. Uh, what a great player. And, uh, yeah, I'm sure. You know, just nobody likes losing to me because they're like, man, how can this guy beat? But that's the way <laughs> me and Joe have been all our lives. I mean, you know, we're just we're and sometimes we well, sometimes we get in there and, and win something. John, just a couple more before I let you go. And speaking to Joe again with with the state of the game at the professional level and player distrust of Jay Monahan over the debacle of last summer and going behind the back and meeting with the guys from Piff and all that stuff. The person that I've heard some of your former peers mentioning, if there was going to be a new PGA Tour commissioner, who could it be? 
And I've heard a number of them say, Joe, is that something you can see him doing? Absolutely. I don't think he would, but I I think in his day, there's no question Joe Inman would have been, would be, or, or would have been a great commissioner. Yeah. He's, he, 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 (laughs) that's funny. Uh, because I've, I've said that many times and I'm sure some other people have, but you know, it's a, you know, it's a tough deal. Look, we've all, you know, the, the tour is, is so multifaceted, so many, you know, there's like 26 different divisions or some, some number like that, you know, that, you know, some are for profit, some are not for profit. And, you know, it's a, it's a big wheel. And, um, you know, I'm sure it's not an easy job, never was for Dean Beeman or, uh, or Fincham, but, um, yeah, it's a, to me, it's a sad state kind of where we are in the game, but, um, you know, it's going to work itself out. Uh, I, I, I have a, you know, golf's not going anywhere. People are still going to play golf and there's, you know, it's still, you know, it's, it's going to look different though. In 2012, you were inducted into the Guilford County sports hall of fame. What was it like for you being honored like that in your hometown? Yeah, that's pretty cool. You know, if you make it into a hall of fame, it's, it's, it is really cool. And I, I'm very fortunate, you know, uh, then a lot of great athletes come out of, uh, Guilford County. Um, and, you know, I think of our quarterback that played at, at Carolina, Rod Elkins, who was just one of the best quarterbacks who played at UNC. And, you know, I just, I, there's so, you know, it's, it's really cool. It, you know, it, it's, you just have to think of, uh, you know, how lucky you are to be, uh, recognized you know, in, in anything, whatever sport it is. And, uh, there's, you know, I, I'm, I'm very happy, um, to be in that. My brother was in that, you know, uh, as well. So again, I'm following in his foot, footsteps. John, before I let you go, let our listeners know, how can they stay up to date with all the things that you're doing, whether they're following you online or it's on social media? You know what? I am not, I am a ghost. I, I am, I, I played golf one time last year, uh, in, in the middle of the year until November and then played, uh, two tournaments in a row and played great, uh, you know, it, pro members kind of thing. And I was like, you know, that, that might be the way to go. I'm just not playing a lot of golf. I do not have a presence. Uh, if someone could follow me, they're doing really good because they're, they're, they're digging deep. Uh, so, you know, I need to get, I need to play a little bit more and I feel good. Uh, I've had back problems throughout my career and, you know, I'd love to be able to get back out there and, and, uh, and play some more. Uh, so yeah, like I said, if people could follow me, they're, they're digging deep. (laughs) All right. Well, John, it has been a huge thrill having you as part of the show tonight. I know we're just kind of barely scratching the surface of the great things that you did over the course of your career. I hope we get the privilege of having you back on the show again soon. Well, I appreciate it. And I'm pretty sure that we covered every great thing that I did. I'm pretty (laughs) sure. So, uh, yeah, anytime, Chris, would love to talk again. And, uh, you know, just just let me know. I appreciate it. Joe, take care, my friend. All the best to you and your family. We'll catch up soon. You got it. Take care. That is John Inman. And, folks, just a guy who had a tremendous amateur career, both in high school, college, and then translated that into playing really great golf out on the PGA Tour. And you, and you heard how much fun he is. And I'm standing here uh, looking at a John Inman Pro Set golf card, um, which kind of really got me thinking I'd really love to have him as part of the show. 
And I uh, can't thank him enough for taking time out of his busy schedule to come back or come here and, and be a part of the show. And like I say, I, I know that he had a lot of other great golf tournaments along the way over the course of his pro career. So I hopefully get the opportunity to chat with him again soon. Coming up next is a guy who is the second rookie of the week to join me, a guy who was in the mix a bunch of times in the 80s and the 90s, won the 1986 Florida State Amateur, and is just a fantastic teacher of the game now, and that is Barry Cheeseman. Before I get to Barry, coming up next is a lady who has been named one of the 50 best golf fitness professionals by Golf Digest in our game, and that is Catherine Roberts. Catherine is an amazing lady. She's going to do a lot for us to help us use ground forces in our bodies to really get more strength and power in our game. Before I get to Catherine, I want to remind you about our friends over at Two Under. Two Under Men's Performance Briefs are the unofficial underwear of the PGA, Ryder Cup, and President's Cup teams and are sold in over 3,000 golf pro shops and golf specialty retailers nationwide. Ricky Fowler is their global ambassador, and over 50 other PGA, Corn Ferry, and Champions Tour players wear them. Just to mention a few, they are David Toms, Jerry Kelly, Justin Thomas, William McGirt, Jason Kokrak, Scott McCarron, and Chris DeMarco. The Joey Pouch technology provides the ultimate male asset management, delivering maximum comfort from the tee box to the boardroom to the bedroom. Use code NEXTONT20 to save 20% off your order at 2under.com. That's the number 2, U-N-D-R.com. 2under, performance in your pants. Okay, now joining me is another guy making his next on the tee debut tonight and a former tour player as well, and that is Barry Cheeseman. Barry is from Galesburg, Illinois. Prior to qualifying for the PGA Tour, he played minor league baseball, was drafted by the St. Louis Cardinals back in 1977. He spent four years in the minor leagues as a catcher and a pitcher, also spent some time in the Angels and Yankees organizations, turned his attention to golf in 1986. That year, he won the Florida State Amateur Championship by two strokes over Len Matisse at Innsbruck Resort and Golf Club. Earned his tour card in 1988 after going through Q School. He got his first win on what was then the Ben Hogan Tour at the 1990 Quail Hollow Open. Finished 13th that year on the money list and earned his tour card again. Went back and forth between the two tours over the next few years. Then took some time off before coming back to the game in 1997. That year, he won the Nike Hershey Open, finished sixth on the money list. 1998 and 99 were his best years out on tour, finishing both years inside the top 100 on the money list. In 99, he had three top 10s, and over the course of his tour career, on top of those two wins, he had 26 top 10 finishes, three top fives, and a third-place finish at the 1998 Michelob Championship at Kingsmill. Back that up the following year in that same event with a fourth-place finish. After his playing days on tour, he went back to baseball and was a scout for the Houston Astros for a couple of years. He's now a golf professional and a golf instructor down in Florida. He's got his own golf academy down there in Sarasota, Florida. And I couldn't be more excited to get to have him with me tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Barry, thanks for coming on the show. Hey, thanks for having me. So, Barry, I want to start our time by going back to your victory at the 1986 Florida State Amateur Championship. Like I said in your intro, you're trailing Len Matisse by four strokes going into the final round, and Len won the high school championship in 84. He won the Dixie Amateur that year, won the 85 Southern Amateur, and would go on later to finish second in the Masters in 2003. 
But talk about chasing him down to win the 86 Florida State Am. Well, uh, I mean, I was I was a player that came out of nowhere that year. Um, I was just an average Joe working for a living, and and there were a lot of college players playing. Um, I was lucky to qualify for it. Um, last hole, I actually made a double bogey and still won. Um, the course was really difficult. I, mean, I shot two over to win, um, and uh, I guess I was just kind of lucky. Because I wasn't playing with Lenny. Lenny was, I don't know, two or three groups behind me. So I was in the clubhouse just waiting for everybody to show up. So it was quite an exciting uh, venture for me. And Barry, you went through Q School a few times. And talking with several of your peers over the years, they talk about how that is the most pressure that they felt, regardless of anything out on the PGA Tour, the Champions Tour, trying to get through Q School is the most pressure they felt in their careers. Was that true for you? Oh, no doubt. Um, I went, I think it was 17 or 18 times. Um, I have had incredible highs and pretty much incredible lows um, at tour school. I mean, the first time I went um, was 86. First try I ever made, I made it to the final. Um, I really was, that was the year that I that I went won the state am. I went and turned professional that year. Um, getting to the final was quite a venture. Um, and then the next year I came back and got my tour card through the through the Q school. And um, going down to the last hole was extremely nerve wracking. I, mean, I shot five under to make it, um, and so it was. Uh, just trying to limp it in to get in just to get your tour card. And that was a pretty amazing feeling there. In 88, you finished tied for 11th at the Greater Milwaukee Open, thanks to a final round 67. If Ken Green doesn't go out and shoot a course record, 11 under 61 in the third round might have been a heck of a finish in that golf tournament. As it was, he won by six. You were a few strokes beyond behind that. Talk about being in the mix because there were a heck of a lot of tour legends battling it out trying to finish second, third, fourth in that golf tournament, and you were right there. What was that week like for you? Well, for me, most of the, you know, I started out pretty good my rookie year. Um, and then for a long stretch in the summer, which is the later on in my career, summer was sort of my best season, I would call it. Um, but, you know, coming in in the summertime, I had not made any cuts. Um, I had run on this stretch of bad luck, um, and then all of a sudden it clicked, and uh, you know, just kept going. The golf course fit me. It was more of a Midwest course, which is kind of the golf I grew up on, um, and uh, it just clicked, and everything kind of happened. Um, we played twosomes. It was the first week. I had ever played a twosome, and I think it might even have been the first week the tour was trying to play the twosomes on the weekend. And all I did was we played fast and kept moving and just kind of got on a roll and kept going. So it was it was very exciting. Barry, you get your first win at the 1990 Ben Hogan Quail Hollow Open. You won it by two strokes over Kim Young. What do you remember about getting your first tour victory? Um, well, I remember how I finished it. I got up and down out of the bunker to make par. <laughs> so that was, that was pretty good to, uh, 
pretty pressure packed there. Um, and I can't, and I, I actually came through when you needed to under the club, under the gun. And, and it was, you know, kind of clutch. Um, so it kind of made me feel good. It kind of carried me on the rest of the year. Um, I got close because back then that was the first year it was Ben Hogan tour and, and the, the only amount of, uh, Q school cards they gave was five. So, you know, you, you were either in the top five or you were going back to tour school next year, but you were getting in a position where you could get to the final or second stage. And, um, so, you know, battling it out was pretty good. And, and Kim was a good player. He was one of those journeymen kind of like I was. And, uh, he played well and I just, you know, got hot at the right time and, and played smart and, and made a good up and down at the end. So. You get win number two at the 1997 Nike Hershey Open, which was a new tournament out on the Nike Tour that year. It was played at the East Course at Hershey Country Club. This time it's a one-stroke victory over Greg Lesher and Billy Downs. Both were great players. Take us inside win number two. Well, you know, it seemed like every time I played well, I finished strong. Um, if I remember right, I think I shot 67 there also to finish. Um, extremely difficult golf course. It was more U.S. Open type. Um, had to play smart. Didn't always hit driver, which I wasn't exactly known as hitting a driver straight. I could hit it really far. So, you know, played smart. Played the par fives really well, which I guess sort of one of my strengths because of my length. And, um, you know, came in clutch. It got a little nerve wracking. Then Billy was right behind me. Um, I was in the next to last group. I think he had a putt on the last hole to tie me, and he missed it from, uh, I think it was five or six feet. So I was sitting there watching that, which can even be more nerve-wracking than playing because you have to watch somebody else not do what they're trying to do. And so, but that was that was in a, you know, a really good adventure. I stayed with a, a family that week that were members of the club, and, and they were out cheering me on and, and you know, when you're staying with family, you usually keep in touch, and I've kept in touch with them all the way till now. So it's it, it was it was really cool. Hershey was a great golf course. In '99, you had a share of the lead after 54 holes at the Tucson Open, along with Tommy Armour the third. You ended up finishing tied for fifth that week in a field of 81 players who made the cut. Talk about being in the thick of it that week. Well, that was that was a lot. That was actually a lot of fun. Um, I had some from my baseball days. Uh, the White Sox were training out there, and um, I had some coaches out playing that I knew from Sarasota that were when they when they trained here, so I knew them. They were out watching. I had some some family that I stayed with in Phoenix. They were watching. Um, so, but but just you know trying to go after it. Um, it was a lot of fun that week. Um, Unfortunately, I came up short. I was actually tied for the lead with, I think, with three holes to go. And I made a finished bogey bogey, which was not real good. But um, I had a chance actually on 18 to tie and ended up making a, I was chipping in. I was trying to chip in from a short distance and I ran it too far by and then missed the putt and ended up finishing fifth. So, but uh, that, that was a, a really good tournament. That was cool. You shoot 63 in the first round of the Byron Nelson Classic, and you end up tied for ninth that week. And 
Tigers in the field, and it's a you know, Sergio, Steve Pate, Lauren Roberts, who would go on to win the golf tournament in a playoff over Pate. But you're right there in the thick of it with all of those guys and the early parts of their careers. What was it like for you to be in the mix? Well, that was cool. Um, I had a, a good friend of mine, and you, you may know who I'm talking about, J.C. Anderson, who was a former yes. team of John Emmon. Um, J.C. lived in Dallas. And he had asked me a few weeks prior to that if he could caddy for me. And I told him, oh, yeah, sure, you can caddy for me. And so um, I had never played good. In fact, I don't think I'd ever made the cut at the Byron Nelson. And just having J.C. on the bag, we talked about, you know, different strategies. And and he kind of got in my head and actually made me play good. Um, But... uh, it was it was an awesome week. We had a lot of fun playing, you know, him caddying for me. Um, so it kept me a little more relaxed. Um, play, in fact, played with Corey Pavin the last day, um, which was good because some of a little longer than Corey. So Corey's about about the length of John. So he was most of the time way back. But it was fun playing with Corey the last day, and uh, that was that's all. That was a hard course for me, and I played way over my head so that was that was cool speaking of length barry you ranked seventh on tour in driving distance that year you averaged 287.1 and i'm sure if you had today's equipment you would have been well over 300 yards do you remember the equipment that you were using back then at that time yeah i still have it <laughs> is I that right it, but i still have it um yeah i was using i was one of the last guys that stayed with wood drivers before we switched over to metal. Um, and so, you know, I, I was, you know, hitting it that far with, with that equipment is, is pretty good. Um, you know, I, I haven't hit a wooden driver or small headed, you know, metal wood for a long, long time. And, um, but yeah, it's, you know, today I remember my last year, was 2006 and that was on uh it was on the nationwide tour and i was i averaged over 300 yards and that's all equipment based i mean because every i look back at my first year in 88 i think it was in the low 280s and and just the uh, the change of equipment it was a wooden driver with a metal shaft um heavy as all get out and stiff as a board and you know equipment has just made leaps and bounds differences in fact i haven't lost distance until about two years ago and now that now it's starting to go shorter so it's it's, uh equipment has changed the game dramatically very let our listeners know what you're doing now well i teach golf now um i'm the director of instruction of longbow key club which is also a resort um, on Lombo Key, which is just an island off of Sarasota. Um, I've been teaching golf for about 12 years now. Um, I remember some of my friends who had left the tour and went to teach. And I always said to them, I said, there's no way I can't, I could never teach. And then all of a sudden I did it and I go like, wow, no wonder those guys did that. And uh, I have a lot of fun. I enjoy doing it. Um, I enjoy watching people get better. Um, we're, we're a big golf, a big club. And we have about 4,000 members. Um, 
It's a 45-hole facility, a lot of seasonal people, but we do have a lot more year-round residents now. And um, it's it's a busy, it's a golf factory. We have a lot of people running around. I'm working pretty much eight to 10-hour days this time of year because this is our season. And uh, it's a, it's, Teaching golf is a great thing to do. I have a lot of fun doing it. So, Barry, how can our listeners either follow you online, on social media, or come down and get a lesson from you? Well, um, I have a a Facebook page, Barry Cheeseman Golf Academy. I don't really get on it much because I'm so busy. Um, I used it because I had a golf academy at another location where I needed some some you know social media help and i have an instagram page um i don't use those as much anymore i even used to have a web page um but i don't i discontinued that because i don't need it but um my i can be reached at the longbow key club um i can teach anybody you can come stay at the resort it's an incredible place um but it's you know it's it's a busy place and it's a great golf course. We're always in great condition. Incredible. Well, Barry, I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your day to come and be a part of this show. You're fantastic, my friend. I've enjoyed hearing your stories and uh, I'm sure there's a whole bunch more of them. So I'd sure love to have you come back and join me again sometime. That would be my pleasure. Barry, take care, my friend. All the best to you and your family. Look forward to catching up with you again soon. Thank you. Take care, Barry. That is Barry Cheeseman, C-H-E-E-S-M-A-N is the spelling of his last name. And just like John Inman before him, a guy who had a fantastic amateur career and translated that into success out on the PGA Tour. And again, the guy that won the Florida State Am. Look, when you look at the fields that Barry competed against and the legends that are now uh, you know, out there on the PGA Tour legends who he competed against as an amateur and early in the parts of uh, his career are just astounding. The guys that that he was up against every single week and having success against. So great job of uh, out of him winning a couple of times out there and then translating that now into a guy who is a, a wonderful instructor from everything I've read. People singing his praises about a great instructor that he is. So hopefully we get the opportunity to catch up with him and pick his brain a little bit more not too long from now. Coming up next is a guy I've been really looking forward to having as part of this show, and that is Robert Morris men's golf head coach, Steve Shingledecker. Before I get to Steve, let's talk about our friends over at Squares Golf. And folks, do you sway in your off balance in your golf swing? You know what? It could be your shoes. A golf shoe needs structure to provide stability and reduce sway. How can you tell if your shoes lack structure and are hurting your game? If you can hold your shoes by the toe and heel and twist it, toss it. Squares was designed for the perfect balance of structure and comfort. Isn't it time you tried Squares? Try the new Speed Bolt at squares.com. That's S-Q-A-I-R-Z dot com. Looking for the ultimate Myrtle Beach golf experience? Well, it's only a click away. Check out the two-play special at two of America's most awarded public golf courses, Caledonia Golf and Fish Club, and True Blue Golf Club. They are low country masterpieces featuring two iconic Mike Strands designs. Play these two incredible courses for one great price. Visit CaledoniaGolfAndFishClub.com to learn more about the two-play special. 
and book your tee time today. Again, that's CaledoniaGolfAndFishClub.com. All right, now making it a trio of guys making their next on the tee debut with me tonight is Steve Shingledecker. Steve is the men's golf coach up at Robert Morris University just outside of Pittsburgh and Moon Township. He is a native of Franklin, Pennsylvania, which is just a little north of Pittsburgh. He's also been the director of golf operations and instruction at the Turn Club in Cranberry Township. Prior to that, he was the director of golf at Nemecolin Woodlands from 2018 to 2020, one of the world's top 100 golf resorts. In college, Steve was a four-year starter for the baseball team at North Carolina State from 1988 to 1991. He was the ACC tournament MVP in 1990, and his senior season, he was on the all-ACC team. After graduating with his degree in business management, he stayed at the at North Carolina State as an assistant coach, and he helped them win the ACC championship in 1992. Coming back to golf in 1998, he was a sectional qualifier for the U.S. Open. In 2001, he was a local qualifying medalist and sectional qualifier again, and he qualified that year for the U.S. Amateur. In 2003, he qualified for the, U- uh, the U.S. Mid-Am. Unfortunately, Steve has shown his severe lack of judgment by hanging out with our good friend Eric Johnson since high school. And I was hesitant to have Steve on the show when I found that out, but I figured everybody's entitled to one bad mistake and a second chance, so I'm honored he is with me tonight here on Next on the T. Hey, Steve, thanks for coming on the show. Hey, Chris, thanks for having me. And for the record, I was hesitant to come on to a show that would have Eric Johnson on. (laughs) (laughs) Touche. That's fair. So uh, Eric Johnson, I mean, he he wanted to remind you, he wanted me to remind you of your title of being the second best athlete Mm -hmm. to ever come out of Oil Creek region. He said you were a garbage athlete, actually. Seems harsh, but I don't know. What are your thoughts? That's kind of interesting. I mean, you know, if you've seen Eric golf, you know, he can do that. He can definitely teach, but. That's where it ends for Eric. I don't think he can dribble, catch, throw, you know, any of the other things that would uh, probably define an athlete. So, uh, you know, he might make an argument on the golf side of it, but the I struggle to listen to him use the term athlete when he refers to himself, but we'll let him have that for now. <laughs> he wanted me to ask you about the section championship that you lost to him. Oh, for Pete's sake. For the record, it, it was uh, it was his brother. Who takes uh, who takes credit for winning that? Which ironically, his brother's score didn't count initially. It was uh, I think in high school you either took six, five uh, six or five out of the six, and after the five we were tied. And his brother was sixth, uh, and yet his score ended up being the one that counted. So Brent actually takes credit for winning it, despite the fact he was actually last on his team that day. <laughs> Uh, on a more serious note, you guys work together a lot. I know you work together at Nemecolin, which is one of the top golf resorts in the country. Talk about your time together there. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because Eric and I, you know, we, we obviously we met when we were really young and, you know, kind of stayed in touch. But it's a different era. You know, when when I went to play baseball and he went to play golf, you it's it's completely different paths. And you, you don't have you're not going to text somebody. There's no social media. so. You know, it was more or less the thing where you just kind of keep track. And obviously after he went, you know, he went to the breakers and for a while. And then when he came back to Oakmont is when we were able to reconnect. And for the most part, you know, I was doing 
uh, you know, more real life corporate America type things. And, and Eric was at Oakmont. So we'd see each other when we could. Uh, he had, you know, he had the boys. I had a family. We started, I started helping out the boys a little bit with their baseball and he would come down and help out at my club. And kind of one thing led to another. And when he was director of golf up there, um, or he was director of instruction and they asked him to kind of take over the entire, uh, you know, all the golf operations for the, if you know, Eric, you know, he, he can barely open a computer, let alone use it. So, <laughs> you know, he needed somebody with more, with some business skills as well. So he, uh, but yeah, going back to, you know, all the way back, it was kind of the first time we had an opportunity to, you know, to actually work together. And I was, you know, I, like I said, I've been, you know, done a lot of things, but I played baseball, I coached basketball, you know, golf was something I always played and enjoyed and loved, but, you know, into the instructional side was very new to me. So, you know, having an opportunity to kind of climb in with, uh, you know, one of the, one of the, please, I, I know you record it, just don't send it to him. One of the best <laughs> instructors, you know, that, that, you know, is out there in the game, uh, you know, was, was such a great leap for me, uh, you know, to be able to learn from him and learn his techniques and learn what he was teaching. Um, you know, and I've just kind of, you know, really taken that and, you know, ran with it the best I could. So since turnabout is fair play, what's your favorite Eric Johnson story? Oh boy, that's a good one. He has, you know, there are so many stories for Eric. Uh, (laughs) let's see how many of them can we, uh, you know, I think, I think if, if, if nothing else, it was watching him, he could put on, you know, if you've seen his trick shows, incredible. Uh, there are times when, you know, Eric can hit it off of, you know, out of a, a bottle, off a balloon, off a tee, sideways, backwards, upside down, on his knees, backwards. And he would do those shows up there in front of the world and just hit and just impress everybody. And then when everybody would leave, I'd say, all right, now put one on a tee. <laughs> just, a, <laughs> just a regular golf tee. And let me see you play that little drawback out there. And uh, and that's where it got a little more difficult for him. He had all the <laughs> shots in the world except the one that you need nowadays. <laughs> that's great. So, Steve, let's go back in your career as we talk about you being a, a great baseball player. How does a guy who was a top ACC baseball guy end up becoming a great golfer and a men's golf coach? Yeah, you know, I, I you know, honestly, I be, again being a different era. I played baseball because that's what you did. You know, for the most part, I was going to, I thought I was going to play golf in college. And my brother was a couple years older than me, was a phenomenal baseball player, highly recruited, and did go to NC State. And along the way, you know, I, the, the different coaches, different schools would come and watch him play and, and, and occasionally talk to me. So I knew, you know, I wasn't naive enough to not know that I didn't have some some skill, but it was just kind of always going to be golf for me. And, uh, but you didn't, you know, back then you didn't just stop playing a sport. You played them all. You, you, just, you know, I would wake up in the morning, go to the golf course, golf as much as I could, and then get home and to put on the baseball uniform and play a game and do it again the next day. And as I got to kind of, you know, watching my brother's career start and, and grow and go down and visit and, you know, see the bond he had with his team, it became kind of apparent to me really late that I, you know, as much as I loved golf and realized there's a team component, you know, to me, I wasn't really ready to give up the true team sport. 
And so I decided at that point, you know, I was going to play baseball knowing that I could come back to golf when I finished up. And I kind of, you know, honestly, I knew I wasn't, uh, you know, I wasn't going to be a major league prospect or anything like that. I didn't have the size. I didn't have the, you know, I was kind of sort of the way I golf, kind of a grinder. Um, you know, my coach Tanner told me every year that he tried to replace me. And for the most part, every year I wouldn't let him. Um, so I had a really, you know, I had just some wonderful memories playing at NC State. And I had some, you know, some really, really good days. And of course, some really tough days. But, you know, in the end, um, I was able to do what I want to do, which is get back into the game, you know, in the, in the golf, um, you know, eventually and, and play. And honestly, you know, evolving to where it is now, um, you know, where they say all roads lead to, I don't know that any roads led to this. I'm not even sure myself at this point, you know, how I ended up being a, you know, head golf coach at a, at a university right now. It just, just one of those things that the, the dots really connected and, you know, my love of the game and, you know, perfect timing has kind of put me in this position. So you talk about having really good days and correct me if I'm wrong here, but 1991, you bat 303, five home runs, 106 total bases, 49 RBIs and 68 games. You have eight steals. You have 29 walks, 29 strikeouts. That's a pretty strong season for a guy who was just kind of going in there and they were trying to replace all the time. Yeah, I can't believe I struck out 29 times, though. Uh, that's a lot that was a lot back then uh that was one of my pride areas i you know but uh you know nowadays you strike out 29 times in about 10 games but uh yeah again i you know i'll, I'll be the first one to tell you that part of you know getting to go to be able to play in nc state was you know because i had a brother that was you know all american um you know i didn't coach tanner who was you know, eventually uh, went on to South Carolina and won a couple of college world series. And, you know, is now their athletic director. Again, he told me, he told me every, every year, like, I really would like to be able to replace you. But, you know, I was, um, you know, somebody who had to learn how to, you know, learn the intangibles, a little cliche, but, you know, I hit, I used the whole field. I could play any position, I think if I had a claim to fame, it would probably be that I started 10 or more games in five different positions as a left-hander. I, all the outfield, um, and we actually, you know, pitcher, and then we actually had uh, a couple of first basemen. One, I think, was academic. One got hurt, and one day Coach Tanner threw me a first baseman's mitt and said, go try, go over there. That's where you're playing today. And so I even got 10-plus starts at first base, which was, I enjoyed the the rest of the infield didn't enjoy throwing it to a five foot ten on his tiptoes guy, but uh, <laughs> you know that, that's what I did. I I did whatever that was that guy. I did whatever I had to do to make the team better and stay in the lineup. You keep mentioning your brother Gary, who had a wonderful career and in, in college. Also got drafted by the Orioles, right? Eleventh round he, in nineteen eighty nine. He did. He did. Yep. He was. Uh, he had a really really good college career and. You know, quite honestly, a pretty short uh, professional career. And to, you know, to his credit, I think after, it didn't take long, again, for him to realize, you know, back then there was such a big difference in, you know, number one, the aluminum bat to the wood bat. And there were, you know, a lot of Gary's success, you know, the, the balls that were home runs in college ended up going to the warning track and the pros and the balls that got between third and short in college 
got ate up by the you know the, the third baseman or shortstop, and he was uh, he was again a little bit he was more gifted than I was, but in the same boat, he was really really good with just about everything, but he he wasn't great, you know, and and you know to play at that level you. You know, you either have you have to do something exceptional, if not a couple of things exceptional. And, it, you know, it I, it didn't take Gary too long to realize that, you know, there was a level that he was, didn't think he was capable of reaching. Like I mentioned in your intro, when you come back to golf, you did it in 1998. You go through sectional qualifying for the U.S. Open. It was held at the Olympic Club in San Francisco that year. What was it like for you trying to get through sectional qualifying to make it into the U.S. Open field? Yeah, you know, it was a, it's always been a little bit, again, untraditional for me. Growing up, you know, not having played college golf and, you know, coming out and just started jumping into, you know, if I'm being perfectly honest, most, the majority of my competitive golf where I live, you know, the, as you mentioned, about 60 miles north of, of Pittsburgh, most of my competitive golf involved the competition of uh, the wallet in my back pocket. Uh, you know, I didn't do as much of the, you know, the tri-state, West Penn State, you know. And so the the qualifiers, the U.S. Open qualifier in particular, was was kind of one I had circled, you know, pretty early on and, you know, getting back into the game. And, you know, took my lumps uh, at times. And, you know, but, you know, when I always said I think I'm a, you know, between the mid I think I was a, a really good 18-hole qualifier, um, you know, because I could. You know, that was easier, like, I guess, with anybody else to kind of maintain. And, you know, and I remember the first time, um, you know, I was kind of in the hunt there. I, I know I was playing with John Mazza and, you know, I'll say it on the show, I'll say it ever. One of the truest gentlemen that I've ever played around the golf with. You know, it's, it's, it's one thing to have somebody say to you, hey, good putt, good shot. You know, everybody says that. It's kind of another thing to feel that that person is genuinely rooting for you while they're in the hunt, too. And if I'm being honest, I'm not sure I was rooting for John, but you could tell that from him. And I, and you know, I got uh, it got down to the to the stretch, and you know, I, mean, I think I birdied 15, 16, and 17. Um, and I can still remember, you know, having a thinking a simple two putt kind of gets me. I'm pretty sure I'm through, and it was about a 15 footer, and that was probably the toughest two putt I had in my short career playing golf. So, but I did get that thing up and down and, you know, in a way we went. You know, we don't have to talk about the next qualifiers. That was <laughs> As well, 2002 Mid-Am Championship, you finished second in stroke play to advance on to the match play portion of the tournament. It was played at Williamsport Country Club in Williamsport, Pennsylvania. That's another pretty strong week for you. Yeah, I was. You know, I, I, one of the things I, you know, again, being, being late to the game, uh, one of the things I really enjoyed, especially back then was the, the middle, you know, the mid amateur stuff. Uh, when I qualified for the U S mid am, for instance, it was, that's when it was 30 and over. Um, and so you got to go, you know, compete with guys like myself who, you know, weren't playing all day, every day. They, you had other jobs, you had other interests, you had other things going on. I think the one thing that I remember about, you know, the, the, the state am was there, the statement was that I hadn't, you know, I had played, I've been playing, but I hadn't been playing a lot of tournaments. And, um, 
when I went down, I didn't, you know, I didn't have anybody to go with. And I remember at the last minute asking my dad if he wanted to go down and caddy and, and he did. And, you know, I, you know, being able to shoot, I think, you know, 67, 68 in the first round and, you know, hang on to get towards the top of that, uh, you know, top of the, the stroke play part of it was pretty cool. That was, I, you know, I think that was, my dad had coached me and everything and all the way along, but I don't think he'd ever actually carried my bag. And, you know, having him on the bag for that tournament was special. You've talked about being well-rounded in your sports background. You also coached high school basketball. You coached Franklin High to a, a AAA state championship, and you were named PIAA Coach of the Year back in 2006. Talk about helping those kids and what it was like winning a championship in a third sport. Yeah, that was um, that was really special. Um, kind of a combination of, you know, a town like Franklin is, you know, it's a small town. At the time, uh, you know, I'll say, though, you know, there were only four classifications in Pennsylvania. We were in AAA, so you played uh, you played some pretty good competition. There's no um, – they don't – in Pennsylvania, they don't distinguish between the, you know, the schools that can, you know, bring outside talent. I'm trying to hold off from saying recruit, but I think that's the right word anyway. Um, you know, so being able to do it in, in, in a small town of kids that, you know, that – generally i saw it grow up um you know and able to and i honestly you know while i played high school basketball and was you know fairly good at it you know the <laughs> i got into high school basketball from baseball because i knew i couldn't play coach baseball and golf it just we just don't have enough time up here to do them both so i really loved coaching and i thought ah what the heck i'll coach basketball and i started at ninth grade and you know kind of got a passion for you know the the strategy of, you know, of coaching basketball is so different, of course, than, you know, baseball. It's, there's a lot of downtime in basketball. You're, you know, you got to be thinking really on the go as a coach. And, you know, so I got, you know, really got involved there. And again, I, you know, the, the kids that you coach there, they're the same kids that, you know, they played elementary together. They played. And, you know, in 2006, ironically, we were, you know, 2005, we had the same kids from six, but we're, had a little, had some other, you know, five graduates who were really good. I think we had, I think we were 28 and one. We had a 22 or 23 game winning streak playing against the biggest schools. And we got bumped in the quarterfinals. And that was probably a better team. Uh, the next year, you know, it's just something you see in the NCAA tournament at times is that, you know, we had lost twice to a team we ended up beating in the playoffs. We didn't win our league. We didn't win the district. Uh, when we went into the state playoffs and, and it just was like, like that NCAA type of tournament, you know, I, I think we were a little bit higher than probably Valvano's Wolfpack or Villanova or something like that. But it, that's really what it was. It was, uh, a group of seniors catching lightning in a bottle and running with it. And, you know, it's, it's funny because I've been able to over the years, I think this is the, you know, I'll send them a text, I believe on March 24th, the, the anniversary of the game and, you know, I've been able to go to a lot of their weddings and things. And there were seven seniors on that basketball team. And they're, each of them are in every wedding party and every get together. And it's, it's nice to, you know, because at the end of the day, as much as now we're dealing with NIL and all this, the live and all these globs of money that are being spent, it's nice to be able to realize and see that, you know, the kind of the true spirit of sports is your, is your memories and your friendships and, and, and these kids 
who now have their own families and stuff, but they can celebrate and we can celebrate, you know, what they did for a, a really cool two weeks. And Steve, now you're the head coach of the men's golf team there at Robert Morris. Talk about how you got the job there. Yeah, that, that, wow. That one is, uh, that's probably the one that I say, you know, there weren't a lot of roads that led to it. Um, you know, 18 months, a little over 18 months ago, this, it was nowhere near my radar. Uh, and, you know, and truth is, um, I was working, you know, I was helping a couple of the kids on the team, you know, instructionally. And I knew that, um, you know, from talking to them that, that the coach they had, Coach Stone, was, you know, having some health issues and they, they had a volunteer assistant for a long time and he had actually passed away. This, these kids had dealt with COVID. So kind of had a soft spot for everything they were going through. And I mentioned uh, to, to one of the kids, I said, look, tell coach, you know, if you need, if he's got stuff going on, he needs somebody to come by a practice just to be there. You know, I'd be happy to do it. And uh, I got taken up on it. And then, you know, it just so happened that, you know, things were, you know, more serious for coach and his travel was very restricted. So what I thought was going to be helping out at some practices ended up, you know, I'm on airplanes with these kids by myself and trying to figure out how to run a college golf program um, on the fly, you know, last year. And, you know, we, I got through the year, I went to every tournament, you know, multiple trips. And um, at the end of the year, when, you know, coach Stone officially retired, it was, you know, I was fortunate. I had developed a little bit of a relationship uh, with a wonderful athletic director we have over there with great vision at Robert Morris, Chris King. Uh, we still went through, you know, the interview, the search process, and the interview process, but uh, it was a pretty natural transition since I was with the kids. So I officially took over in June. And you've got a mixture of some young freshmen and fifth year seniors who are from all over the place that have come there to play at robert morris talk about your current roster yeah we you know again it's a it's a very very unique situation i would probably think it might be more unique than just about any program in the country right now would be in that i have what if you know there's only eight kids right now on the team i don't know what the magic number is it's probably closer to 10 honestly in college depends on your resources but um of the eight you know five are going to be gone after this year there are uh, four, there are, excuse me, three graduate seniors, uh, another one who's in his fifth year, but getting a regular degree and another senior uh, who, you know, just is going to get his degree and go into uh, banking uh, and finance. So there's five, there's five young men that are, are going to be there that I have, you know, one sophomore and two freshmen. And, you know, so re- recruiting has been, um, you know, obviously a key point for me, but the, the, the five young men that I have now that are, that are graduating this year, you know, I, they're, they're great kids and I'm, you know, kind of been pressing as hard as I can to give them as much as I can, I guess, in, uh, you know, what would be, you know, a really good final year. And, you know, if nothing else, a little bit more of a normal year again, that these kids have dealt with COVID. And, you know, some, you know, both seeing both of their coaches have some really serious health issues and one, in fact, pass away. So, um, you know, we're working really hard, hopefully, to kind of have a last blast here in the spring and, and, you know, see what kind of run we can make. You've actually got a tournament coming up at the end of March, the Cutter Creek Invitational. 
It's down in Snow Hill, North Carolina, not all that far from NC State. Might you get a little local support from the NC State fans? Well, now that you mentioned that, we are actually, uh, our spring break got a little bit mixed up too with, uh, for the first time in, for I guess forever here, Robert Morris bumped the beginning of the semester up a week. So our, everything we had planned for the spring was now in, you know, in flux. So I reached out to some of the old friends, one being, uh, Robbie Pulowski, if you're familiar with Robbie at Duke. Um, and then, you know, I'm fortunate that when I was at NC State, a couple of the guys who uh, were on the golf team that I became friends with are now head coaches. Bowen Sargent is at Virginia. Press McFalls at NC State. So I reached out to those guys. So we're actually going to Raleigh-Durham uh, first. I think we're leaving March 9th. And we're going to spend the week, you know, five or six days at NC State and Duke at their facilities kind of practicing. Uh, and then we'll return 10 days later to Cutter Creek and east carolina so that and i do have some friends that uh that i'll definitely see on we're actually attending an nc state baseball game whether they like it or not we are um <laughs> on on march 12th the the original coach that recruited me as an assistant coach coach Avent is has been the head coach at nc state baseball now for a long long time and uh so we're going to be able to go to that and yeah i'm really looking forward to it not to mention the sponsor of the Cutter Creek Invitational is Bojangles. And I have not had Bojangles in a very, very long time. So I'm excited about that, too. <laughs> I bet you are. <laughs> so, Steve, as a guy who has become a really good golf instructor, I imagine it's got to be a, a tenuous position for you because when you get young recruits in or guys that have been playing, they have teachers, I'm guessing, outside the program. You're watching these guys play. Does it become kind of a touchy situation for what you're seeing from your players and what you feel like they need to, to do differently or better in their golf swings or in their practice routines versus when you've got a guy who's got an instructor outside of the team and that person has input? Does it get, get kind of sticky? Yeah, that's a great question, Chris. It, it does. It absolutely does. And, you know, it kind of starts obviously with your relationship with them. And I have, you know, a great relationship with all the kids, but at the same time, I'm, you know, I'm walking or I walked into a situation where a lot of these kids were four years into playing college golf. And yeah, many of them have their own, uh, instructor or instructors or guys they're seeing, you know, frankly, a lot of them are, you know, very comfortable. Some are, some are comfortable in their own swing. And so Early on, I, you know, I, I decided and understood that, you know, the, being everybody's instructor is just not a rabbit hole you want to go down. Uh, we kind of have an open door policy. They understand that um, any questions, any, you know, they want me more or less to be their instructor. We can have that conversation if they and they, you know, we do almost in every practice. They'll ask me to, you know, take a look at something. But you know, I do not at all consider myself anybody's full instructor. I spent two hours with one of the players this afternoon on a track man, just working on, you know, helping him hit a cut. But at the same time, you know, I don't get, I don't really get into the weeds with them on that, you know, unless it becomes something. We'll talk maybe, you know, we'll certainly talk about the things I teach or, you know, uh, we work on in practice are, you know, uh, you know, technique, course swing technique and, you know, have some certain drills and, 
competition because we're indoors and things like that. We'll be doing a lot of wet, um, you know, different drills and stuff that'll, that'll help them. But it's, I'm not, and you know, it's crazy to, you know, to think you can take, you know, up to 10, 12 kids and, you know, teach them all at the same time. And, you know, I think you'd also get into a little bit of uh you know, like a conflict if you're spending more time with one. So you're, you're absolutely correct. It's a, you know, we work on, you know, certain alignment and strategy on the golf course and, you know, definitely shots and things like that. But, you know, getting into the, to the real deep dive of their, you know, their golf swing, um, you know, I prefer to, you know, go, you know, I'll, I'll use Eric, I'll use, if they don't have an instructor or somebody along those lines of you, Mike Rebella up at Nemecol and, you know, to, I'll send him video on the kit because I'd rather have a, another opinion in, in many cases. You guys have four tournaments left in the season before you get to the Horizon League Championship. Talk about what you're looking for from the team as you get into these last four events. Yeah, I, th- I think in, in, you know, in terms of Division One college golf and, and the mid-major, you know, we, we, we have, um, you know, one of the things when I took over is I, uh, I moved some tournaments or I, you know, frankly didn't, you know, got out of some and, and got into some better ones so that we had a better idea of, of, uh, you know, what was out there from a competition perspective. As much as it, you know, and we're on open and honest, I hand them a book about, I made a booklet about practicing and I have our preseason projection of seventh in the league, you know, in the conference on the first page. I have our overall rank of 253rd on the second page. But with that said, um, we are one and a half shots per kid per round away from being in the top 100. And, you know, when you break it down more into that, now you can start talking about, you know, some different strategies, some different, you know, it's, it's like any other sport. There's always a couple of possessions that separate the, the winners and the, you know, the haves and have nots. And, you know, and I, what I saw a lot in our fall was, you know, there's, there are, you know, certain situations that we can improve on and we're, and we're working on that. We're working on, a, you know, we're spending a ton of time, you know, indoors. You know, we were blessed to be out, outside four or five days last week, but a lot of it's indoors at the dome and we're working a ton on short game and on, you know, again, uh, you know, understanding our lines and not crossing over and understanding that the, the misses are more important than, you know, the good ones. And so that we're not looking to make, you know, we're not looking to win the national championship, but if we can, you know, get 1% better every day and we can eventually take one to one and a half shots per round off of our score, then we can compete with any, just about anybody, you know, in the top 100. And if we can, you know, I have, I have mature players. I have young players who are getting better and, you know, for the next couple of months go the way we hope, then I think we'll give them everything we got at the conference. So how can our listeners follow you and the team online and on social media? Oh, I was afraid you'd ask that. Um, <laughs> you know, I let, you know, I let the players kind of, you know, I, you can go to rmucolonials.com and, you know, go to the golf page and through the golf page, you'll be able to get the links to the Instagram, Facebook. You can obviously see our schedule just on the website. Um, you know, the, how we're doing, how we, you know, the results, uh, the, you know, the old records and things like that. But yeah, I'd start it, uh, at the athletics website and get into golf and it should be able to take you everywhere from there. 
Well, Steve, RMU is my mother's alma mater. I've got my RMU hoodie on as we speak. I'm rooting hard for you guys. You're fantastic. Thank I you. hope we get the privilege of having you back on the show again sometime during the season or hopefully shortly thereafter. I'd love Absolutely. to catch up with you again soon. Absolutely. Anytime, Chris. Steve, take care, my friend. All the best to you and your you. family. Thank you so much. Take care. You too. Right. That is Steve Shingledecker. Again, what a tremendous athlete he is. You want to talk about a guy who's well-rounded. And we've talked on this show and to many players over the years about how important it is to be a well-rounded athlete and how that's going to make you better in any sport that you end up deciding to go to, as opposed to being the kid that just plays one sport and specializes in one sport. You become a great baseball player, a great basketball player, and, and that translates into being a really wonderful golfer. He did all of those things and now is bringing his talents, not only as a basketball coach, won a championship there, won some ACC titles as a baseball player at NC State and now doing great things at Robert Morris University. And on top of that, he just sounds like just a, a wonderful guy. And anyone who pokes fun at Eric Johnson is a friend of mine. So I look forward to actually, maybe we can get both of those guys on the show together. How much fun would that be? All right, my friends, it is time for me to put a bow on this edition of Next on the Tee. My sincere thanks again go out to Tom Patrick, John Inman, Barry Cheeseman, and Steve Shingledecker for joining me this week. Scheduled to join me next week are one of our great friends from over on our football show Thursday Night Tailgate, one of our guest Hall of Famers, is L.A. Rams legendary quarterback, and like I say, a great friend for many, many years, and that is Jim Everett. I can't tell you how excited I am to have Jimmy as part of the show next week. One of the top instructors in our game and a past Georgia teacher of the year, Kevin Roman, will be back, as will the founder of Caddy for a Cure and former PGA Tour Caddy Russ Holden. And then we'll round things out with someone who's become a wonderful friend over the last couple of years, and that is the wife of Billy Mayfair, Tammy Mayfair. She'll be here to share her stories from the years of working in the television industry at places like CBS Sports, where she was a part of their master's coverage. So it's going to be a fantastic show next week, folks. I hope you'll come back and join us and be a part of it. A quick reminder that you can find this show available as a podcast just about anywhere you get your podcast content. In particular, we're out there on the Pittsburgh Tribune review site. Just go to triblive.com, click on sports, and then podcasts, and you're going to find the show available front and center for you there. You can also find the show on Good Pods, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Audio Boom, and Player.fm. And again, as always, my thanks to the folks over at Good Pods for making this show one of their recommended podcasts. So please download their free app and stream your favorite podcast from your favorite device right there on Good Pods. But most of all, my sincere thanks to all of you for being the greatest supporters in the history of podcasts. I appreciate you all so very, very much. Until next week, hit them straight, my friends.